just as we um, stand in the presence of God. We're just in a room in Sunderland. It's the year 2015. There are all kinds of things going on in our lives. And maybe they occupy your minds right now. Certainly there are things occupying my mind. But as we stand in this room, God, in the person of his Holy Spirit, is present with us. He knows your name. He knows your life. He knows what you're up against. He knows the challenges that you face and the fears that you don't express. And he has come to minister to you. We worship the servant king. And he has come to bring his salvation to you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, he's come to bring his salvation to you. And so, Father, our Father in heaven, we invite you to come and take your holy place in our midst and wash our feet and clean us within and do the things that need to happen so that we can be rescued and brought into the joy of knowing you fully. And so, this morning we ask you, living God, to come have your way among us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, what's been happening this week? I'm a newspaper addict. I read two newspapers every day. I I read The Guardian. And uh, then, just to counterbalance that, I read The Telegraph. And uh, if I've got time, I read the headlines in the BBC. um, BBC website. And I kind of, I kind of, bit of a news freak, really. And the things that have been happening this week, let me give you a quick rundown. Firstly, uh, the movie of Fifty Shades of Grey has just been released, and everybody is talking about it. And England beat Italy 47-17, which is always encouraging, isn't it, when England actually beats somebody. Um, Zane Lowe is leaving Radio 1 and is going to work for Apple in California. He's the Radio 1 DJ. Everybody's talking about this. And, of course, the biggest news of all this week is that Steve Strange, the former frontman of the 80s band, Visage um, died. And everybody's talking about uh, for some reason I cannot fathom. I've never heard of him before in my life. Except he does look strange. And I think he did some strange things. All this kind of stuff that's going on, that's the stuff that's in the headlines. That's the stuff that, respect, irrespective of all the serious business, all the people dying, all the wars that are being fought, that's the stuff that occupies people's minds. That's the stuff that people are talking about. That's the stuff that's relevant. That's the stuff that's now. That's the stuff that really matters. And sometimes when you talk about the Bible, sometimes when you talk about some of the things that we've been singing about, people glaze over in the expectation that what we're about to think about is completely irrelevant because it's got nothing whatsoever to do with Steve Strange, Zane Lowe, the England rugby team, or Fifty Shades of Grey. Listen, what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at an event which has influenced the life of every man, woman, and child on this planet. 
It didn't happen in a city. It happened, and this was deliberate, in the middle of nowhere. No one has a clue where this took place. Roughly yes, exactly no. Because it doesn't matter. It was in the middle of nowhere to a nobody, a shepherd in the wilderness. But from this incident, three of the world's great faiths take their birth point. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So it's important, right? You can't say it's not important, even if you don't believe anything. But if you believe anything, even just a flicker, even if you believe just a flicker of something about the God who might be there, I don't know, but I believe he, he might be, then this is the most relevant stuff you will ever hear. Because at this moment in human history, and there was a moment, this is a historical event, at this moment in human history, God introduces himself to us, the real one. And exactly what that means, we're going to think about over the next few minutes. Just a bit of uh, recap. Previously, in Exodus, Israel has been in Egypt for several generations. They're talented, they're industrious, they're multiplying like flies, and the Egyptians are terrified of them. Terrified of them, and the racism begins, and the oppression begins, and the Egyptians enslave the Israelites. And they cry out to God, and God hears, and God begins to act. He sends them a rescuer, Moses, just a little baby, who's under a death sentence from the very start. But he survives. He grows up in the Egyptian palace, the palace of the Pharaoh. And Moses is the rescuer, but he's a bit keen, actually. He's a little bit previous with his rescuing. He loves rescuing, and he's trying to rescue an Israelite from a beating and he goes a little bit too far and he cold-bloodedly murders an Egyptian. And so now he's on the run. He goes to Midian. Where's Midian? No one knows. The Midianites didn't even know. He's just in the middle of a desert somewhere. And now we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3 and the first few verses. Exodus chapter 3. You'll find um, on page 100 and... Oh, I've lost it. 59. Thank you very much. And Exodus picks up the story like this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. What happens now is the most important moment in Moses' life. And arguably, the most important moment in the Old Testament as well. As God revealed himself to this nobody in the middle of of nowhere. Now Moses had grown up in Egypt and if you walk down the street in ancient Egypt just as you walk down the street in some of the ruins in modern Egypt you'll see there are gods everywhere. There are statues of gods, there are pictures of gods, there are outlines of gods in their writings on the walls. They have gods for the sky, gods for the sun, gods for the moon, gods for the stars, gods for the cats, gods for the dogs, gods for the goats, gods for the rivers, gods for the waterfalls, gods for the caves, gods for the desert, gods for the sea. They have gods for everything. There were gods everywhere. 
And these gods all had one thing in common. They were malevolent. They weren't on your side. To get them on your side, you had to bribe them. You had to bring them offerings and grovel before them and bribe them. And if you were lucky, you got God on your side. But if you wanted God on your side, you had to pay. And that was the way it worked. That's actually how religion does work. Religion is a sort of power game where people use God to get power over other people and get them to do what they want. And that's the world that Moses grew up in. And in the desert, Moses met the real God. I first met the real God in a field in the Thumberland, um, just outside a village called Long Horsley. Moses met the real God for the first time in a bush that was burning with flame, but that wasn't actually being burnt up. I met the real God through watching the lives of people who were on fire with a love for this real God. And that, that fire, that flame in them, helped me to see for the first time that this God is real. It was attractive. It was credible. They weren't religious nutcases by any means. They were just regular people whose lives were built on this God. So however you meet him, this God wants to show himself to you. So ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you the real God. Here he is. Chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. This is the real God. This is not the fake God that human beings have made up. In a world full of gods that have got to be pursued, that have got to be cajoled, that have got to be bribed and groveled to and entreated for help, Moses meets the God who takes the initiative. You don't have to chase him. He chases you. Do you remember Jesus? His favourite story. There was a guy who had a hundred sheep. And then he noticed one was missing. He only had 99. So he left the 99 sheep in the pen and he went to seek the one that was lost. That picture of the God who searches, that's the real God. He is the opposite of the God who's waiting for you to come and grovel to him. The God who's waiting for you to come and buy him off or bribe him. He takes the initiative and he comes to you. 
Moses. Moses. Do you like the bush? Got your attention, didn't I? He's the God who seeks to get our attention. And I don't believe any human being goes through life without experiences in their life where God is trying to get their attention. There might be a starry night where you're blown away by the Milky Way. It might be the view across a valley in the Lake District. It might be just holding a newborn baby. Again and again, God wants to get your attention. Our problem often is that we are not interested. We shut ourselves off. The moment you show any curiosity, that's the dangerous point. Because the moment you allow your curiosity to express itself, that's when God begins to speak to you. So in a world which is full of atheists and would be atheists, they need to go through life with a part of their brain carefully screened off from everything else because God is constantly nudging them. God is constantly trying to get their attention. The essence of atheism is repression, by the way, not liberation. Moses responds, I got your attention because God is the one who tries to get our attention. He seeks us, not the other way around. And, and he knows our name, Moses. Moses. He knows our He knows your name because you matter. Isn't it brilliant when someone remembers your name? It's amazing. I visited a church in Cambridge once. uh, And I I went to this church twice because I was using a library in Cambridge for some work I was doing. I went to this church on the Sunday, first Sunday I was there. went to this church on the second Sunday I was there and went back five years later to the same church. I walked in. The pastor, a guy called David Smith, walked up to me and said, David, it's good to see you. I couldn't believe he remembered my name. I wish I could do that. I can't. It's amazing. But isn't it amazing when someone knows your name? Moses. Moses. Got your attention. I know who you are. You matter to him. He knows your name. And in a world full of these strange so-called gods, Moses meets this one true God who seeks him, who knows his name, and who is very, very specific about who he is. He's not just anybody. Have a look a little bit further down, verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Once you get this right, Moses, I'm not just one of those birds on a pillar in Egypt. I'm not just one of those statues with a lion's body and a human head in Egypt. I am the personal God of Abraham, your ancestor. I knew personally Isaac, his son. I walked personally with Jacob, his son. I'm your God. Because this God, the real God, who seeks us like a shepherd and who knows our name because he cares for us, he wants personally to be our friend. He wants to have an actual relationship with you and with me. Oh, we're talking about Moses, right? 
And Moses was a celeb, and everybody wants to know celebs. Moses is one of the celebs of the Old Testament, and there are lots of them, and they all knew God personally. But God's not interested in cannon fodder like me. I'm on here on earth to make the numbers up. I don't matter. I don't count. Wrong. They will all know me personally, God says to Jeremiah, from the least of them to the greatest. That's the promise of the Bible. That we know him and walk with him personally. He is personal. He's your God. He's my God. Now listen. This is hard to say in 21st century Britain. This is hard to say in a multicultural, multi-ideas environment. With tenderness and respect for all the other ideas in our culture, for all the other religions in our culture, for all the other religious people in our culture, with tenderness and respect to all those folks the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, says to us, this is the real God. Anything else is just a figment of the human imagination, or worse. This is Him. This is God revealing Himself to us, the one who seeks you because He wants to know you, the God who loves you and knows your name. Now, that's hard to say in our culture, but it has to be said. It has to be said gently and with respect. But I say it because it's true. This is God speaking to us and showing us who he is. Think back to the last time you met someone new. Maybe at a party, maybe at work, maybe at a conference, maybe just at the school gate. And you shake hands with them, you find out what their name is. Very quickly in the conversation, some kind of question comes up. What do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do for work? What do you do? And so as he's introducing himself to us, God has to answer that question, because it's the natural question that human beings ask. What do you do? God, what do you do? Let's pick up the story. Pick up the, uh, the message, the chapter 3 and verse 7. God said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So you meet someone new, and he tells you what he does. And this is what God does, the real one. He rescues people. The, the technical word for that is that he redeems people. He rescues us from the things that oppress us. He rescues us from the things that prevent us from being whole. He rescues us from the things that prevent us from being truly human. He rescues us from the things that prevent us from being truly free. 
It is in his nature. It is in his DNA. He hasn't got DNA, but it's in his DNA to rescue people because that's what he does. And he wants to rescue you. And he wants to rescue me. From all of those things, all you have to do is two things. One, ask him to help you. And two, work with him. Follow him. Do what he says. You have to ask him to help you. He won't hijack your life. He will come into your life if you invite him. And he invites you to work with him. Because just like Moses in the wilderness, his life is being shaped by a whole series of experiences to enable him to do God's work and rescue the Israelites. So our lives are a series of incidents that sometimes seem random, that sometimes seem brutal, that might even seem cruel sometimes. But God is making us into the kind of people that are free from the things that oppress us, the things that prevent us from being really human. And you can summarise the whole Bible, as Matty said a little bit earlier on, in the seven words that you'll find in verse 8, the first half of verse 8. I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to rescue them. Seven words. That's the Bible. And we're going to see in the book of Exodus how God comes down through Moses to rescue his people and bring them out of Egypt. And when you get through to the New Testament, you see how God comes down to rescue not just the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, physical slavery in Egypt, but the human race out of slavery to sin. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's what the cross did. Do you remember? As Moses draws near to the burning bush, God speaks to him out of the burning bush and he says, don't come any closer, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. There's an issue between you and I that has to be resolved. It's called sin. That issue has to be resolved. God is pure and holy, unimaginably pure. And we are not. We are sinful. We're not what we should be. And here's the important bit, you see. Whatever you think you need saving from, whatever it is that's oppressing you, whatever it is that's preventing you from being whole, whatever it is that's preventing you from being human, whatever it is that's preventing you from being free, the heart of that issue is sin. And that sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be forgiven. It needs to be, its power needs to be neutralised. And when Christ died, he paid the price for our forgiveness. When Christ died, he neutralised the power of sin so that we can be changed. And when we meet with him, when we begin to show some curiosity at the burning bush or the burning people that we meet, and when we start to ask questions and he begins to speak to us, when we say yes to him, we change. Like Sarah's mum and dad. 
uh, amazing story. We change. Our whole inner life changes. And we are rescued. And we're rescued for a purpose. We're rescued to serve. Chapter 3, verse 10. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses is rescued and given a job to do. That's exactly what he does to us. He rescues us and he gives us a job to do. Sometimes, like for Sarah, that job is to be a really good math teacher. Head of a math department in a busy school. And a signpost to heaven for a mum and a stepfather and the rest of the family. and Finding a niche within a church where she can serve. These, these are the ways in which God engages us in the, in the huge plan, the great plan that Jesus called the kingdom of God. To bring the rule of God back into the hearts of men so that we're set free from the things that oppress us, set free from the things that prevent us being really human, set free from the things that imprison us. We're saved to serve. Which raises a question. And Moses asks the question straight out in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who on earth am I? I meet people occasionally who are so full of themselves that they really seem to believe that they're the answer to God's prayers. But not many. Not many. Most of us, I think, and I'm decades of experience just talking to people about their lives and their walk with God and how to make some progress. Most people are just crushed with the sense of their own inferiority, their own uselessness, their own, who am I? This, this is ridiculous. I, this is for the celebrities in the, the Bible. It's for the celebrities in the church, not for me. Who am I? The Bible tells us something about Moses. You might like to look at Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter um, 12 and verse 3. This is on page 148. Just a little throwaway remark about Moses. Chapter 12, verse 3, page 148. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Some translations you might have, Moses was a very meek man the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, he's a guy who's had a, a, a miraculous rescue as a child. He's taken into the, the court of Pharaoh. He's brought up as a prince in Egypt. He's, he's got every right to be full of himself. But he's not. He really isn't. He cannot imagine... He has no sense whatsoever of his potential greatness. <laughs> and the Bible says that God will use the meek. Blessed are the meek, Jesus once said, for they will inherit the earth. It's the strong, it's the proud, it's the arrogant 
who will only ever inherit six feet of it. But the meek will inherit all of it. And you see in Moses this lovely spirit that I wish was mine. He just couldn't see it. Who am I? God's answer. God's answers are amazing. Moses said to God, who am I? And God said, verse 12, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. There's so much in there. I've only got time to focus on two things. One, I will be with you. This is the God who wants to be your companion through life. I will be with you. There's a psalm, Psalm 16. I think it's something like verse 8 that says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I cannot be shaken. It's a gorgeous idea of walking through life with God at your right hand. It's like having uh, a driving instructor beside you all the time when you're driving your car. Maybe you don't like that idea, but it's sort of that kind of picture. God is always there. Because he is at my right hand, I cannot be shaken. I'm quoting that from memory, so I might have got the details wrong. But here's the idea. I will be with you. Jesus, some of his very final words before he ascended to heaven, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. He wants to be with you more than you want him to be with you. He wants to be with you. Here's the second thing. And this will be the sign that it's all true. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. We're made for two things. Every human being on earth, every human being in this room, we're made for two things. One is to be with God. To be a companion of God. Two, to worship this God. That is to appreciate at the deepest possible level. And to express in every moment of our lives, not just Sunday morning between 11 and half past 12, every moment of our lives, our appreciation and our love for this God. Human beings are at their best when they're worshipping God in the way that they live their lives. And this isn't about grovelling before some capricious being. That's religion. That's not what we're talking about. This is about enjoying God for who he is and what he's done, and what it's like to have him walk beside you. This is about just enjoying him for who he is. Now there is an alternative. A lot of people embrace that alternative and say, I don't worship anybody, but that's not true. That is not true. You either worship the living God who's there, the real God who wants you to walk beside him, or you worship something else. Usually, yourself. Or maybe from time to time you fall in love and you put all your hopes, all your dreams, all your aspirations and all your needs onto the shoulders of the person that you love. I put it like that deliberately because you know they can't bear the weight of your life. Can they? There's a guy, a recording artist called Hosier. He's uh, number three in the BBC uh, single chart at the moment. This is a little quote from, from his single, Take Me to Church. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me 
worship in my bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I picked that because it's recent. But you could go right the way back through the history of Lung's love songs. You are my honey, honeysuckle, I am the bee. I'd like to taste the honey sweet from those red lips you see. I love you dearly, dearly, and I want you to love me. You are my honey, honeysuckle. And the only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. And that feeling of ecstasy, that feeling of romantic love, that feeling of Valentine's Day love, is the thing that we long for more than anything else in our society, because frankly we've got nothing better. Even though we know no human being on earth, however wonderful, and I'm married to one of them, no human being on earth, however wonderful, can bear the weight of another human being's life. This song isn't in the charts at the moment, but it almost got there a few weeks ago, and you might hear it from time to time on the radio. It's a song called Something in the Water by a, uh, an American singer called Carrie Underwood. He said, I've been where you've been before, down every hallway is a slamming door, no way out, no one to come and save me, Waiting, wasting a life that the good Lord gave me. Then somebody said what I'm saying to you. I opened my eyes and he told me the truth. He said, just a little faith and it'll all get better. So I followed that preacher man down to the river and now I'm changed and now I'm stronger. Couldn't fight back the tears so I fell to my knees saying, God, if you're there, come and rescue me. Felt love pouring down from above, got washed in the water, washed in the blood and now I'm changed. Now I'm stronger. It's a different world, you see. Every love song you've ever heard is a worship song addressed to the wrong person. That's a worship song addressed to the right person. Because only one person is able to hold the weight of your life. The God who wants to walk beside you. The God who loves you enough to know your name. The God who loves you enough to search for you over hill and dale and to try and get your attention again and again. This God, this is who he is. This is what he does. And that's who you are. Who am I? That I should be able to do all this. You're someone I want to walk with. You're someone I want to worship me. And when you walk with me and you worship me, you are capable of anything. Nothing will be impossible for you, said Jesus. Walk with me. Worship me. Address your songs to the right person. Put the weight of your life on the right person. And so you come to this moment. I think this is an amazing conversation. Almost done. Just in case you're feeling, when's this guy going to shut up? Almost done. So Moses said to God, verse 13, suppose I do go to the Israelites and, and, and and say to them, it's amazing, he thinks he's negotiating, right? Well, suppose I do do what you're You've got no choice here, Moses, it's going to happen, just give in. Suppose I do go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, it doesn't look much in English. It looks slightly strange in English. But this conversation took place in Hebrew. This conversation took place in a very early form of Hebrew. And Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? Give me something new. Give me something specific. Give me something concrete I can give to the people who are going to ask me some very searching questions. And God says, tell them, Yahweh sent you. That's how you say the word. Yahweh sent you. It's it's a name so holy Jewish people won't say it for fear of accidentally blaspheming God. Yahweh sent you. And the word, that word translates as I am. End of argument. End of discussion. But like some English words, it's got not just a word you can translate, but it's got overtones, it's got a flavour to it. And in Hebrew, the overtone, the flavour of this word is, I am and I always will be. The one thing you have to reckon with in the universe is not the possible existence of another subatomic particle that might turn up next year at the Hadron Collider in CERN. The one thing you've got to reckon with in the universe is that I am. And that is my name, Yahweh. In the Victorian days, they expressed that word as Jehovah, which isn't particularly accurate. Yahweh sent you. And in doing that, it was like God was giving Moses his personal name. God, the God of all the universe, was giving this individual, his personal name and inviting those who are in a covenant relationship with him, Israel to use his personal name. A few weeks ago um, we were visited by Prince Charles and it was lovely to have Prince Charles come and visit the place. We got a a lovely letter from Clarence House this week. I'll I'll pin it up somewhere and you can see it by next week but uh, it was really nice Um, and we got some instructions from the Lord Lieutenant as to how we were to address His Royal Highness when, when He spoke to us. Can you imagine what it would have been if, if, if Prince Charles had walked in, the, walked in the, um, the building, shook hands with the, the reception party. Good afternoon, Your Royal Highness. So good to see you. And he got to the person at the end of the line who happened to be me. And he held out his hand, shook it firmly and said, Dave! You can call me Charles. That would be a a bit of a game changer, wouldn't it, in the relationship? Ooh, he knows who I am. Wow! He wants me to use his actual name. Well, that's what's happening here. Only it's more amazing. Because we're dealing with the person who first had the idea of the Higgs boson. Or whatever new particle will crawl out of the Hadron Collider in 2015. 
Here is the creator of the universe. I want to walk with you. I want you to walk with me. I know your name. I want you to know mine. I want you to use it. I want you to call it out. And when we call it out, we use that name in the name that the the Old Testament says from now on. Just that next verse, verse 15. The Lord God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers. Now can you see in verse 19, that word Lord is in capital letters. Capital L-O-R-D. Quite often the word Lord is small letter L-O-R-D, but here it's capital L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh is, is being translated as Lord in capital letters. God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. Verse 18, The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and said to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And when we call on the name of the Lord, that's what we're doing. Lord, you told us that we can walk with you. Lord, you've told us that you care about us. Lord, you've told us that we matter to you. We cry out to you. We call on your name. You get the picture. And so it begins. Moses is now going to take himself back to Egypt and he's going to challenge the might of the greatest superpower on earth at the time, the Egyptian Empire. And he is armed with a name. That's all. Let's pray. And we're in the presence of this God. And because God is spirit, he is here, even though you can't see him. And he's been speaking to you and to me. What is it that oppresses you? What is it that holds you in slavery? What is it that prevents you from being the person you could be? What is it that binds you? Just name it to him. And ask him, Lord, Yahweh, my God, Set me free. I just feel it's right this morning to just to speak very personally to those here And you know God has been trying to get your attention. But up to now, you've always walked away from the burning bush. You're here because you're curious. Or maybe because you've been dragged along 
Maybe because your mum has brought you here or your dad. Can I ask you to ask this God who loves you and who knows your name to come into your life and to forgive your sin and break the power of sin and set you free and change you. Just tell him that now in a few moments of quietness. And just as we're sitting here <coughs> together, we've met to worship God in a culture that doesn't want to know Him. And so, Father, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we cry out to you for our nation our culture that thinks that an ecstatic love affair can give their lives meaning and purpose and that believes it can last forever when they know that it can't we pray Father that you will again and again even though we don't deserve it keep on getting the attention of people in our nation, stopping us in our tracks and turning us around as you turned Moses around. And we pray, Lord, that in the streets of this city and the streets of all our cities, there might be the sound of joyful praise. There might be the sound of people stopped in their tracks by the living God and brought to faith and meek humility and love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.